Turn with me in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 11, beginning to read with the first verse. We've been in our study uh, following the Israelites in the Exodus, and we have followed them to Mount Sinai and seen the various commandments they were given and the system of worshiping God that they were given in the great tabernacle, uh, the priesthood, Aaron and uh, his sons, the various laws that governed the priesthood and that governed their approach to God. We moved on to the book of Leviticus, which deals with the tribe of Levi from which the priests were taken and these laws. And we have uh, come today to something that is particularly characteristic of the book of Leviticus and something that shaped the actions and thoughts of the entire nation from that point on, the laws of the clean and the unclean and the food that they were to eat. We have in this 11th chapter of Leviticus a list of prohibitions, various meats that are unclean and various ones that are clean. And the prohibitions cover first animals, as we read in verses 1 through 3. The Lord spake unto Moses and to Aaron, saying unto them, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, These are the beasts that ye shall eat among all the beasts that are on the earth. Whatsoever parteth the hoof, and is cloven-footed, and cheweth the cud among the beasts, that shall ye eat. These two things had to be present. The parted hoof or the cloven hoof and the chewing of the cud. If an animal had one of the two, it was unclean. Again, uh, in the area of fish, in the ninth verse, These shall ye eat of all that are in the waters, whatsoever hath fins and scales in the waters and in the seas and in the rivers, them shall ye eat. All else was unclean. Again, uh, birds in verses 13 to 15. These are they which ye shall have an abomination among the fowls. They shall not be eaten. They are an abomination. The eagle and the ossifrage, the osprey, the vulture, the kite after his kind, every raven after his kind. Again, uh, in the area of carcasses, in verse 24. And for these ye shall be unclean. Whosoever touches the carcass of them shall be unclean, even unto the evening. And finally, creeping things in verse 29. These also shall be unclean unto you among the creeping things that creep upon the earth, the weasel and the mouse and the tortoise after his kind, and then a long list of creeping things that are unclean. Uh, What was the purpose of these prohibitions, of all this legislation? What various purposes did God have in mind? Uh, The various critical theories you can read in your... Uh, books that are critical of the scriptures. Uh, They would say anything from totemism, which we get the term taboo, the idea that uh, these uh, animals uh, were somehow sacred. They uh, derived their origin maybe from these animals, and thus they weren't to touch them. Or the idea of animism, uh, that there was something, uh, some special essence supernatural essence in connection with these animals, that if uh, you got too close to one of these animals, this essence would somehow come and inhabit you. 
And uh, another theory is the theory of ancestor worship and so on. But uh, when we turn from the views of men to the book of God, we find the reasons given in the context. When we look uh, over in the 43rd verse of this book, we find the statement made, Ye shall not make yourselves abominable with any creeping thing that creepeth, neither shall you make yourselves unclean with them, that ye should be defiled thereby, for I am the Lord your God. Ye shall therefore sanctify yourselves, and ye shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall ye defile yourselves with any manner of creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. We pick up that it has to do with their relationship to God. And it sets forth, first of all, the demands of this relationship which they had with the true God. It had to do with the nature of God. You shall not do this, for I am holy, saith the Lord. The nature of God. Holiness in God is his moral excellence, his purity, his, his hatred of evil. Uh, his opposition to sin and his settled determination to punish sin. This is holiness in God. And we say, well, uh, still, how does that tie in? Well, he brings out the nature of their relationship. He says in verse 45, I am the Lord that bringeth you up out of the land of Egypt. To be your God, you shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. You notice this relationship is based on their redemption or their deliverance from Egypt. He doesn't say, be holy so you can enter into a relationship to me. He says, you are in a relationship with me, and I am holy, therefore you must be holy. You can't be in fellowship with me in this relationship unless... You're holy, because that's my nature, says God. Uh, the whole thing is based on their deliverance from Egypt. Do you remember how that deliverance was wrought? That deliverance was brought about through the blood of the Lamb. It was through their offering of the Lamb that the Israelites were saved themselves from the judgment that went out over the nation of Israel when the angel of death would come. It was through their offering of the Lamb and this whole ceremony with the Lamb that they were freed, that they were delivered. This is what caused Pharaoh to let them go and when judgment did come. Well, we've seen already that that was a picture of the Christian's deliverance from the bondage that he was in as a non-Christian through the blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. That Lamb symbolized what God was going to do hundreds of years later when he would send his Son and the Lamb of God would take away the sin of the world. Through application of the blood of that Lamb to my soul, I'm delivered from the bondage of sin that I was in and from the judgment that was bound to fall on those who were in the guilt of their sins. Now, they have been delivered. In other words, these people pictorially were in the position 
of a saved person. They were forgiven. They were in a relationship with God. They didn't get in that relationship by being holy. But once they were in it, then they were to be holy. Uh, The demand of the relationship, he says, I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore sanctify yourselves. I am the Lord that bringeth you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. Ye shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. This is tremendously important. People get the cart before the horse. They think, if I can be holy enough, then maybe I can become a Christian. You'll never get there. No way. You're not holy. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. Christ came and died for our sins. A relationship with God whereby he will be your God and you will be one of his adopted children is offered to you as a free gift, not something that you earn or deserve. If you will simply acknowledge your sinful situation and put your trust in Jesus Christ as the one who died for your sin, instead of trusting in your own goodness as the basis on which God should accept you, and surrender your will to Jesus Christ in repentance. On those two conditions, you enter into a relationship with God as your Father. People get the cart before the horse. Maybe you've heard this Christmas the, the little song, Happy Birthday, Jesus. It's a little girl saying her prayers to Jesus Christ on Christmas Eve. And she says, Dear Jesus, my mother told me how long ago you were born in a manger and uh, that you came into this world for little girls like me. And that when you grew, grew up, wicked men took you and crucified you. For little girls like me, what sin? Oh, it's wonderful. I tell you, the first time I heard it, tears just streamed down my face until the last line, and then my heart froze. Because the last line goes like this. So happy birthday, Jesus. And dear Jesus, I'll be true. Because Mommy said if I'd be good, you'd let me live with you. Mommy said if I'd be holy enough. Then I could belong to you. You just can't get there that way. And that mommy was not leading her child to heaven. You're not good. There's none good. No, not one. We're sinners. Realize that. Don't trust your goodness. Trust Christ alone as your Savior. That's the message of the Bible. But having entered into a relationship with God through faith in the Lamb, then... We are to be holy because we are in the relationship with a God who's holy. Over in the book of 1 John in the New Testament, it says, God is light. In him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, God in us. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin as we walk in obedience to his revealed will. These laws are concerned with us walking in fellowship with God. This is what it was all about for them. Well, how did this 
idea of the clean and the unclean produce holiness. What did it have to do with holiness? It helped establish in their minds the idea of purity. What were they taught by this? They were taught that there was an impure animal and a pure animal. Of those pure animals, only the purest could be offered to God by a priest who had been cleansed. They were taught the idea of God's purity. And there being pure, if they were to approach God, this whole system was getting that across to them. Uh, They were taught discernment. Not only the demand of the relationship was purity, but they were taught to discern between good and evil in every area of their lives. This is what is stated in the 47th verse. To make a difference between the unclean and the clean, and between the beast that may be eaten and the beast that may not be eaten. They were taught to exercise a choice of the clean and the unclean in every area of their life. Uh, In a fallen world, there are a thousand opportunities for sin to pour in on my soul. How can I walk in this world and not be contaminated so I can stay in fellowship with the God to whom I belong? I won't break the relationship if I sin, but I will break the fellowship. How? Only by learning to exercise a critical choice between what is prohibited and what is acceptable to Him in every area of my life, in my business life, in my family life, in my reading, in the movies that I see, in everything I touch, I have to exercise this critical choice or I'll break the fellowship with God. They were taught this. They were taught it in a way that brought it home to them continually that they were in a fallen world, sin all around them. You get up in the morning, you see a, you see a rabbit, unclean. Again, a little later on, you see a camel, unclean. You touch a dead body, unclean. All of these things were brought before them in this way. The grand aim was to imbue the mind with an idea of moral distinctions. And all of this was really to teach that there is a morally acceptable act and an immoral act in the sight of God. God uses always the physical in the Old Testament to get across the spiritual. He fed them with manna to teach them about the bread from heaven, Jesus Christ, who would nourish their souls. Always the physical was to teach a spiritual lesson. Another purpose was to protect from disease. Many modern writers have pointed this out, that the animals selected as clean were those which were most productive of health, and those designated unclean were disease-producing. Duncan Blair, a doctor, in his book, A Doctor Looks at the Bible, says, The flesh of the pig, which was forbidden, is particularly susceptible to parasitic infection. Transmissible, transmissible to man. We today eat pork with impunity only because the mosaic prescription <clears throat> is for us replaced by a system of rigorous inspection of carcasses in our slaughterhouses and at our ports. The unclean birds wisely included the birds of prey, which from their feeding habits are certain carriers of infection. 
The clean beast dying of itself was rightly forbidden as food because many diseases of animal are transmissible to men, and so on. Uh, the purpose to prevent disease becomes even more obvious when the laws concerning washings are observed carefully. Uh, in the 24th and 25th verses, notice the uh, washing that is necessary. For these ye shall be unclean. Whosoever touches the carcass of them shall be unclean until the evening. And whosoever beareth aught of the carcass of them shall wash his clothes and be unclean unto the evening. Uh, the importance of a clean water supply. In verse 35, Everything wherein any part of their carcass falleth shall be unclean, whether it be an oven or range for pots, they shall be broken down. You're not to use them anymore, for they are unclean and shall be unclean to you. Nevertheless, a fountain or a pit wherein there is plenty of water shall be clean, but that which touches their carcass shall be unclean. The significance of this can really be only appreciated in terms of modern medical history. In the book, None of These Diseases, S.I. Macmillan, a uh, M.D., gives a little bit of the history of modern medicine. <clears throat> he tells how in Vienna, back in the 1840s, just a little over 100 years ago, it was one of the famous medical centers in the world. It was a teaching hospital of that day uh, called Krakenhaus. In the maternity wards of this celebrated hospital, one out of every six women died. This frightening mortality rate was similar in other hospitals around the world. The obstetricians ascribed these deaths to constipation, delayed lactation, fear, and poisonous air. When the women died, they were wheeled in the autopsy room. The first order of each morning was the entrance of the physicians and medical students into the morgue to perform autopsies on the unfortunate victims who had died during the previous 24 hours. Afterward, without cleansing their hands, the doctors, with their retinue of students, marched into the maternity wards to make pelvic examinations on the living women. No rubber gloves, of course, were worn. In the early 1840s, a little over 100 years ago, a young man, young doctor named Simmelweiss, was given charge over one of these obstetrical wards. He observed that it was particularly the women who were examined by the teachers and students who became sick and died. He put a rule into effect that after you performed the autopsy, you had to wash your hands. Everybody complained and griped, but after it happened, <clears throat> the month before it happened, 57 women had died. Then the rule of washing hands was instituted. In June, only one out of every 42 women died. In July, one out of every 84. So they got rid of him. They fired him. They didn't renew his contract. The idea that there was some connection infuriated the other doctors. He went to another hospital, and uh, he was hired, and uh, he instituted his hand-washing procedure, and the death rate went down tremendously. And again, he was fired, and he died in an insane asylum from this kind of treatment. 
Modern medicine is just now catching up with Leviticus. How did these rules come into being? You say, well, they copied them from the Egyptian. No. Go read the Egyptian rules. Go read how they treated sick folks. And then may God deliver us from such treatment. No, no. The doctor says it must have been God. How could this recommendation which was given to Moses possibly offer ideas of sanitation advanced 3,500 years ahead of him? The most logical explanation is that the Bible is what it claims to be, the inspired Word of God, says Dr. Macmillan, whose book is loaded with such instances. It's significant that in setting up the distinctions between the permitted and the forbidden, that God didn't overlook man's natural constitution. What was forbidden was what went against man's natural constitution and would cause disease and sickness. The same is true with regard to moral laws. When we think about the moral laws that God has set up and we think about the freedom of man, men become what they think of as free and transgress God's moral laws, the Ten Commandments, at the destruction of their own physical and emotional well-being. In a little book, Becoming Free, uh, published by InterVarsity, the author says, when you think about freedom, you've got to think of the nature of the object which we are proposing freedom to. What does freedom mean to this object? For instance, what does freedom mean to a fish in a fishbowl? We think of him as real restricted. He flops out, and then he's free, and he dies. What does freedom mean in a football game? No rules? No. In order for the fish to be free, there have got to be certain restrictions. In order for the game to go on, there have got to be certain rules. He says, freedom is a condition defined by boundaries or rules which make its exercise possible. In short, freedom is a situation in which a thing, a person, or a group of people can fulfill the purpose for which it is designed. The condition always has limits, but far from restricting freedom, these limits are the very parameters within which its exercise is possible. It's only when you follow the limits, when you keep the rules, that you really can be free. Now apply that to the rules God has set up morally, like the rule about thou shalt not commit adultery or fornication. Dr. Macmillan again says, It should ever be remembered that it is God who created sex urges in man and women. And God put his stamp of approval on marriage. Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled. But whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. The restraints in God's guidebook, says Dr. Macmillan, were never designed to diminish man's sexual enjoyment, but rather to enable him to achieve maximum pleasure in this area. Pathetic indeed that many people are like cows, who break through a fence surrounding their lush pasturage and then live on starvation 
in the desert of cactus. The community, he says, does not know, but the physician knows that the breaking through of God's fences around sex is the basic cause of Kathy's taxic gorda, of Helen's arthritis, of Suzanne's commitment to an insane asylum. True, these girls were not bound by the horrible confinement of religious inhibitions, but they experienced confinements of different sorts and much, much harder to bear. The promised sex freedom turned out to be unbearable slavery of the worst sort. The real enemies of man's sexual happiness are those who would entice him away from his home, his family, and the biblical standards. Not only were the purpose of these laws to set forth the demands of the relationship, to teach discernment in every area of life between good and evil, uh, to free them from the diseases which other nations experienced, but finally it was to put a distance between them and the nations surrounding. God had ordained this nation to be the carriers of truth about the God that is, about how we can enter into relation to him. They were to prepare the way for the coming of Jesus Christ. How were they to do this unless they were kept from the idolatry of the surrounding nations? How were they going to be kept from the idolatry of the surrounding nations? This effectively kept them from social intermingling. When they couldn't eat what the others ate, that meant, ate, that meant they didn't eat together. And by these laws, God effectively put a distance between his people and the heathen people, the non-believing people surrounding. All of these were purposes of this legislation. This legislation passed away. Today we eat pork. And uh, we don't follow these prohibitions. When did it pass away? It passed away with the coming of Jesus Christ. Christ himself, in the seventh chapter of Mark, and uh, the 14th verse, says... <clears throat> When he had called the people unto him, he said unto them, Hearken unto me, every one of you, and understand, there is nothing from without a man that entering into him can defile him. But the things which come out of him, these are they that defile the man. If any man have ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was entered into the house from the people, the disciples asked him concerning the parable. He said, Are you without understanding? Do you not perceive that whatsoever thing from without entereth into the man, it cannot defile him? Because it entereth not into his heart, but into the belly, and goeth out into the draught, purging all meats. He said, That which cometh out of the man, that defileth the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within and defile the man. Incidentally, when it says, this he said, purging all meats, in the King James it says, this he said, making all meats clean, in the uh, Revised Version. This he said, making all meats clean. So later on in the New Testament you read, every creature of God is good. And nothing is to be refused. It is to be received with thanksgiving. These laws passed away with the coming of Christ. Again, uh, Peter was reluctant to go to the house of 
Gentiles and take the gospel to them, people of uh, another race and so on. And God, in a vision that he gave to Peter, in which all animals, all manner of animals were in this vision, he says, Peter, rise, kill, and eat. Peter says, not so, Lord, I've never eaten anything common or unclean. I've adhered to these laws. God said, what I have cleansed, call not thou unclean. And he realized from this that he was to go to these other peoples. And having gone, he says, God has showed me that I should not call any man common or unclean. There are to be no barriers to fellowship on the basis of race or anything else. We're not to call any man common or unclean. We take the gospel to every man. This distance is broken down. We go out on the offensive. The truth has come. The power of the Spirit. And now we go out to convert the heathen. The principles involved in all of these things, number one, if we're to have fellowship with God, we must live holy lives. We don't enter into a relationship with Him by living a holy life. But once we have entered into a relationship with Him by surrendering our wills to Him and putting our faith in Jesus Christ alone, then we must live holy lives if we are to walk in fellowship with God. A holy life is a life of obedience to God's laws. God hasn't left it to us to have to figure out uh, what His will is. His Word is a sufficient guide to godliness and holiness. But we are to take His Word and fill our minds with it and then apply it to every situation of life and discern and make a difference between what is acceptable to God and what is not acceptable in all of our relationships in all of our dealings. This is holiness. This is happiness. If you do this, you'll be happy. You'll be filled with joy. And if you do not, you will be miserable. You'll find that your supposed freedom is disease and bondage and slavery. If we're to live holy lives, we must have new hearts. That's the second great principle. Christ said, out of the heart of men, every man, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries. If we're to have good fruit, we must first make the root good, make the tree good. A bad tree cannot bring forth good fruit. Make the tree good, and the fruit will be good. How do you get a new heart? Christ gives you a new heart. A new heart will I put within them. I will put my spirit within them, and I will cause them to walk in my statutes and judgments and do them. That's the new birth. That's what it means to be born again. When we come to Jesus Christ, acknowledging that we're not holy, trusting Him as our Savior, inviting Him to be our Master, He comes to live in our hearts, gives us new hearts that good fruit comes out of. Once we have the new heart, we still must have instruction and exhortation if we are to be holy. That's the message of the entire New Testament. Now, such instruction and exhortation is not superseded by the new heart. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Obey God because you are His children once you're Christian. 
Don't slip back into your old ways doing evil because you knew no better. But be holy now in everything you do, just as the Lord is holy who invited you to be his child. He himself has said, Ye must be holy, for I am holy. And remember that your heavenly Father to whom you pray has no favorites when he judges. He will judge you with perfect justice for everything you do. So act in reverent fear of him from now on until you get to heaven. God paid a ransom to save you from the impossible road to heaven which your fathers tried to take. And the ransom he paid was not mere gold or silver, as you very well know. But he paid for you with the precious lifeblood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. God chose him for this purpose long before the world began. <clears throat> because of this, your trust can be in God, who raised Christ from the dead. Your faith and hope can rest in him alone. Now you can have real love for everyone because your souls have been cleansed from selfishness and hatred when you trusted Christ to save you. So see to it that you really do love each other warmly with all your hearts, for you have a new life. It was not passed on to you from your parents, for the life they gave you will fade away. This new one will last forever. It came from Christ, God's ever-living message to men. Do you have that new life? Do you realize the absolute necessity of holiness to walk in fellowship with God? Where are you? Are you discerning between good and evil in every area? Let's start the new year off right. Let's commit ourselves to be holy. And for those of you who are not in a relationship with, yet with God. Start this new year off by receiving Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord right now, right this minute. You pray in your heart, if you mean business, the prayer that I pray out loud and invite Jesus Christ to come into your heart, give you a new heart, begin to produce this holiness in you and through you. You pray in your heart right now the prayer that I pray out loud. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, I acknowledge my sinfulness. I acknowledge that I'm not good, that I'm not holy. But I believe you to be the Savior. I invite you to come into my life as my master. I trust you to forgive my sins and be my Savior right now. And in faith, I thank you that you have come in. Amen.